welcome to episode 45 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Sway Jackson. And I'm Sway Jackson. This episode we hung out with El Luna. She, among other things, wrote a book called The Crossroads of Should and Must. She redesigned the Uber app. She designed Mailbox. She's done some incredibly high profile, incredibly awesome things. And among that, she still found time to express herself through her art and through writing and doing some really remarkable, meaningful stuff there. And we couldn't have been happier to get some time with her. Yeah, this was a fun conversation. We actually stayed away from some of the nitty gritty design details and talked a little bit higher level about just life and careers and working as designers. We hope you enjoy it. If you do, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. Also, if you haven't heard yet, we did launch a new podcast network. Uh, it's called Spec, and it lives at spec.fm. You can on, follow the spec. Follow us on Twitter at Spec to the FM. Spec. We hope you check it out. Uh, we've teamed up with another amazing podcast called Developer T. If you are any kind of developer, we highly recommend it. And we are trying to make an amazing place for designers and developers to level up, both in your skills and in your career. Our producer is now going full time on the show. Sarah, she's doing a great job. She's killing it. And now we actually have bandwidth to create more shows. So we are doing that. So you could say things are getting pretty serious. We hope you'll check us out. (laughs) We hope you'll check us out. Go to spec.fm and follow us on Twitter. Before we get into episode 45, of course, we have two awesome sponsors who have made the show possible first off adobe the godfather of design they just released cc 2015 they put in some really incredible features the standout to me the really unique thing is design space it feels like a totally different thing and it's completely unlike what adobe would usually do then they built new export tools massive change in your export flow in the best sense it's so good they they updated tons of apps they they increased illustrator zoom percentage they made photoshop have artboards now which is awesome it's so so cool they've made so many incredible workflow improvements that i'm just thrilled for it's me it, it boils down to if you are designing interfaces adobe is listening to the things that we are asking for they have a cultural anthropologist for which that's his purpose they're building the tools we need to design great interfaces and the new uh cc 2015 is going to help you adobe is an amazing product and company and if you go to adobe.com you can learn more and if you check out our show notes we have a link to everything that's new in cc 2015 everywhere i go i see an adobe person pop up anytime there's a comment on photoshop or illustrator and it is the best see them be like okay so what's the difference that you want to see here what is the improvement you need they're paying so close attention and it's from like one of the big monolithic like huge companies that's really unique to see so we couldn't be happier to have them supporting us and supporting the community thank you once again to adobe our second sponsor once again dropbox dropbox is a tool that if you are not using right now please just stop and go to dropbox.com and sign up essentially they back up and sync all of the files on your computer to all of your devices if you're if you're not using dropbox why do you hate yourself <laughs> we use dropbox every day we use it for in our personal lives Brent and i both we use it to sync and store all of the files for this show basically if one of your devices gets destroyed you don't lose your files as a designer that is invaluable it's an amazing tool to keep things synced between your home and your work computer and dropbox is working really really hard to make design collaboration better 
So they've recently launched a feature called Comments, which lets you comment in line right next to your files. So you have a mock-up. Anyone in your organization can comment on it right in line. Uh, no more massive email threads or back and forths. Uh, they're listening to designers, building tools to help them and help us. And they're supporting shows like this to really help the design community keep growing. They have a truly incredible web interface too. We just learned this week that Brian actually doesn't have it installed on his computer. He only uses the web interface. And that is, if, if that isn't a testament to a web app, I don't know what it is. I love the web interface. He would rather use the web <laughs> app than have it be natively syncing in the background. So huge thanks to Dropbox. If you aren't using them, go to dropbox.com and sign up. It's free to start. And for just a few bucks a month, you can get more storage than your computer can hold. We promise uh, it's an amazing service and we are so glad to have them as a sponsor. Thanks so much to Dropbox. And with that, let's get into episode 45 with El Luna. What are you working on right now? Uh, what am I working on right now? Um, right now I'm working on getting unstuck. Unstuck. Is that a good place to start? I, um, am just, I've just finished a 36-city book tour, and I took a little bit of a break, which um, resulted in me feeling very unproductive. Okay. It was very difficult to take a break. And now I'm looking at a blank slate of time and I'm trying to figure out uh, what's next. And there's something about being lost and being a little bit aimless that I'm trying to sit with. And that ambiguity of not knowing, I'm trying to be patient. My, it's, it's definitely a challenge. Um, I wanna have things resolved, I wanna have them synthesized, I would like a plan, a strategy, and I would like to begin executing it. Yeah. But uh, there's something about the work that's ahead that requires a bit more patience. Are you feeling pulled in any direction or is it totally empty right now and you're waiting for something to come to you? I know the topic that I want to work on, Okay. but I'm terrified and I don't exactly know how to enter into it. And... So I feel like I'm just, I, I'm circulating around this area of work and I'm thinking, okay, well, I've got a design skill set. I've got an entrepreneurial mind that could build a company or an app or a team if it needed that. I could write, I could paint it. I could um, give a talk about it or write a medium post. So just yesterday I made a list of all the different entry points and um, I'm not exactly sure which one I'll take, so I'm, I'm just sort of sitting with it. I'm actually taking the month of August offline. I'm, I try to do a tech fast once a year, and this year a is- tech fast? I've never heard of that before. That's amazing. Oh, That's really? Cool. Yeah. Have you guys ever done it? I've done a week tech fast. What well, did you find? But it technically wasn't, because I had like a camera, and does that count? Well, like were you checking email? No. Cool, that counts. Okay. Was yeah. that when you went fishing? Yeah, did a week with no internet. How did it go? It's awesome. It's great, except I hated it. I hated every minute of it. <laughs> Bryn just missed me really bad. But uh, you just like sit a lot and talk to people, and mm. at least that I did. That uh, sounds like just the worst. <laughs> mm. I mean, we fished and drank beer and stuff, but uh, I mean, okay, it's so it was, you have beer. it was fun. Yeah. So the the topic though that you know you want to explore is that fear. What you were saying earlier. Is that the topic? It's fear in that it's uh, so important to me that if I were to make a misstep or really botch it, it would be uh, very sad. That's not something people usually say is important to them, fear. Fear, well, fear is um, 
it's this sort of idea that maybe what you're going to step into asks all of you. Okay. And the commitment is enormous and it comes from deep necessity. And uh, to operate in that space, you're, you're really kind of battling with yourself. So I'm trying to figure out in my moment of patience, am I being patient or am I being scared? Am I being lazy? Okay. Am I just like staring at this ignore? I feel like, like what I just imagined was just this whole ocean, this huge ocean. I feel like I'm looking at this body of work that really could take the rest of my life. Um, so I don't really quite know where to start. So I'm just sort of panicking. <laughs> I can see that. So speaking of beginning, you just ended the 100-day project with uh, The Great Discontent like yeah, yesterday. yesterday. How was that? Wow. Did you guys participate? Did you see the no. projects? Wow. It was amazing. So Michael Beirut led this project mm-hmm. at Yale for many years. I think he still does it. And I really wanted to do the project, but I wasn't a Yale student. And so I thought, why don't we just do it on our own? And it's basically where you repeat a design action every day for 100 days. So like this year, Michael is drawing his left hand every day for 100 days. And last year we did it. I did um, 100 days of self-portraits because it scared me. Which got really very interesting results. Mm -hmm. Like when I think self-portrait, those are not the things I would think of, but at the same time, like you could see the inspiration hmm. for sure. Yeah, it was, that was a scary thing because the self-portrait was like the last thing that I wanted to work on. And so that means it needs to be the next thing that you work on, right? Are you noticing a theme yet? Like whenever somebody says, oh, I could never do that. Well, then you know that's like the next thing you, you need gotta to do. It, do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this year, 100 days of painting my dreams, which was crazy. Dreams are awesome. Do you that's, guys dream in color? I don't have these kind of vivid dreams that you are apparently having. Hmm. If I remember them in the morning, it is for five seconds. Mm. I I dream in color. Do you? I do. I From the like looks it, of it, it's a lot of color. <laughs> like, it's I, very vivid. I have to. Uh, it has to be a very vivid dream for me to remember it. Like something intense, I guess. Mm. Whether it's scary or intense in a good way, I guess. I don't know. If you capture your dream within five minutes of waking up, or that that's the window that you have to enter that space is five minutes. And um, I use the recorder on my iPhone. And I just start talking when I'm still kind of, you know, on the pillow. and Groggy. Asleep. Yeah, groggy. Because then you can slip back into it. Interesting. And your dreams become aware that you're dreaming of them. And then you have the opportunity to lucid dream. Yes. Yes. That's, that was my next question is, have you ever done the lucid dreaming thing? I have not. I've had a moment where I realized I was dreaming, but the moment I did it, like, it was like the glass shattered. It broke and I the spell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've had one lucid dream in my life. Whoa. Was it, it was, a good one? No, it was bad, but it was really cool. Uh, my dog was getting attacked by a, an animal, by a fox. This is great podcast content. This, this is really interesting. <laughs> well, people talk in our industry a lot about dreams. This is not what they usually talk about. <laughs> Different like literal <laughs> dreams, yeah. But anyways, I was lucid dreaming. I'm like, holy shit, this is just a dream. I can I can end this right now. So I just opened my eyes. It was, it was a weird, wow. weird experience. Anyways. <laughs> dreams are powerful. Yeah. Um, you know the song Yesterday by Paul McCartney? Yes. You heard never that heard tune this. <laughs> in a dream. Yeah. If by dream you mean acid trip. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Frankenstein came in a dream. Interesting. All these different things came in a dream. Um, yeah. So that ended yesterday. Just amazing. The internet is so cool. Internet uh, plus Instagram allowed us to reach people in over 65 countries. I saw um, they did meetups for it too. We're doing that in August. Oh, okay. So for anybody that was a part of it, we're doing meetups all around the world for the month of August. And we have hosts 
volunteering to organize events in different cities. People can get involved. It's just turned into this huge thing. It's amazing. People are making all kinds of art. And, and like really when I stop and think about it, it's people every day claiming a little bit of their time. The one resource that we can't renew, our time. And they're saying for 10 minutes, an hour, I'm going to get off Facebook or get off of whatever the, you know, whatever I'm doing, maybe TV, and I'm going to play piano or I'm going to sing or I'm going to try my hand at watercolor or I'm going to try to become a better drawer. And when you begin to add up those minutes and multiply it by people, like, oh my gosh. You killed some people. Killed. You used up their entire <laughs> lives. <laughs> it's like amazing how those minutes add up. Mm-hmm. And then you begin to think that these people are collectively using their time differently. We're creating behavior change, which we all know designing for behavior change is incredibly difficult. And people are creating everyday incremental change in their lives. From a design perspective, oh my gosh, um, what's happening at a global level is incredibly exciting. Seeing people connect more to their passions, uh, find a practice where it's not about fetishizing finished products, but really just celebrating the process. Uh, that's been an amazing gift to watch. So one of the things I, I noticed when you were speaking, you at first you used the term um, a design task every day for 100 days, and then you switched to art and then back to design. Mm. You consider yourself both a designer and an artist. It says in a few bios, I believe. Where, where, <laughs> okay. do, you, where do you draw the distinction? So I don't know. Um, here's where I am today. I reserve the right to get smarter in the future. Um, so <laughs> That's a good way to put it. My role as a designer has always been about uh, solving a need. And for things that I don't know anything about, like when I worked at IDEO, we had to go and uh, meet with users and get to know the problem intimately so that we would have empathy for the, designing the solution. And it was very much about creating something um, that solved in a very easy way the needs that were um, within the target group. From that perspective, it seemed very much like it came from the outside. The necessity came kind of from beyond, from a group of selected folks beyond. Um, art, on the other hand, comes from this, I don't know, this an enigmatic little place inside of you where you grab a color because you have to, or you are moving across the canvas in a way because your intuition is calling you to do that. So for me, art and design, the motivation, the necessity seems to come from different origin points. However, just a week ago, I, I was driving back across the country to San Francisco and- Oh, you drove back here from Dallas? Yeah. Oh, I assume Dallas? Yeah, Dallas. And um, was in the middle of the desert and in the middle of Arizona. And I suddenly realized that they're all the same thing. I mean, designing for a need in art Listen, I just swapped them. Yeah. Um, working for a necessity in design is the same as working for a necessity in art. And with art, um, it also serves a need with the reason that it needs to be created and to be experienced. And it has users as well. It exists because people can see it or interact with it or walk through it. So now I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I think they're all wonderfully combined. So I call myself a designer, an artist. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I do those things. Because I, th- I think back to like, I, I guess I, do, I know you worked on Mailbox. Maybe I don't exactly know exactly the, the pieces of it that you worked on. But I, I see Mailbox, especially when it first came out, as being pretty much exclusively utility, right? You like, were- how can we help people do these things as fast as possible? Like, maybe I don't see the art in it. Or do you feel like there was art in that 
Or if you could do it again, would you maybe try and bring some of that to it? That's interesting. Um, Mailbox is a tool. Mm -hmm. And the goal of the tool is to help people fly through their email. But the way that it was brought to life felt very aligned with um, also approaching a canvas. The um, amount of time spent thinking about the um, identity, some of the, the softer side of the product was hugely important. So one of the things that maybe you would never know looking at the product, but from a team perspective is like our team was really, we loved baseball. We loved the San Francisco Giants. Like there was always a baseball game on. Um, the engineers loved watching all the games. Uh, we also had a lot of folks from the South. So there was a lot of like country music getting played. Um, there was definitely a, a very casual uh, tone amongst all the people. It was very friendly. Uh, it was a very family-like vibe. And there was something about all of that that reminded me of cowboy culture. Not like cowboys like in the movies, but like, I'm, I'm, so I'm from Dallas. And like being in Texas and seeing, um, you know, old cowboys in like their, their work shirts, they just kind of rolled up their sleeves and got shit done. And they would haul hay and like their trucks were not pretentious. They were friendly. They were, you know, kind of dusty. And there was something about like that raw authenticity of a cowboy that I thought, wow, that feels very like in line in an aspirational way of like what this tool is. And also some of the vibes of our team. Um, and this idea that the tool mailbox could be, um, could work in that sort of uh, humble way, like these you know, kind of ranch hands that I grew up wa watching as a young girl. And so internally, I began putting up pictures of like these types of cowboys, kind of unsung hero cowboys, like all over the walls. And then the name Mailbox, we had a lot of other names, but there was something about just the straightforward nature, like it's Mailbox, like mm -hmm. it is what it is, and that's the name. It wasn't gonna be anything clever. We weren't gonna like mash a bunch of vowels together. It was gonna be like a dictionary word. A bunch of vowels, no vowels. No vowels, there we go. And then when we did our product video, uh, which was really what got the marketing wave up and going for the product, um, the the main character in, in that video is wearing jeans and like a striped t-shirt. She's got a braid, um, kind of like girl next door sort of feel. All the emails, if you look closely at that video, they were all curated very specifically for this kind of cowboy sort of thing. And she's out in a field. She's in the middle of nature. Um, and the song is very folksy, The Littlest Bird. It's these three amazing chicks on guitars. And there was something about that that then set all of the tone for every single like color that was picked, every single, um, the way that all the icons felt, um, the way that all of the messaging happened, the images that were picked inside of the app when you got to inbox zero, everything oriented around this very approachable feel. And I think that people will feel that in the products that we build when it's there. And that's, um, it's like the same reason I bought a Macintosh when I was a young girl, like mm -hmm. I remember, you know, walking in the house with my box and my brother looking at me and, you know, giving me the evil eye. Like I had, you know, abandoned the family with my purchase. <laughs> <laughs> but holding that box said something about me. And it said something about uh, my values that I wanted to, you know, be a misfit and be a creative person with my fonts and my paint programs. So um, I think when we think about brands, even for early products, like we were only 10, 11 people at Mailbox, uh, you have like the functional part of your product at the, at the bottom, like what does it functionally do? And then you have the values of your product, which is um, our, our product stands for fill in the blank. And then in the most ephemeral level, you have the identity of your product. 
And the identity is something that somebody puts on like a t-shirt when they have their app open on your phone and someone sees it at a dinner party. Like, oh, wow, you're using ship? That must say something about you. Oh, wow, you're a Lyft user versus an Uber user? That says something about you. Uh, That's when we get into some of the identity aspects of a product that can happen even as early as launch. Uh, Not to get too tied up in the details, but I've always been curious about the use of Instagram photos when you hit inbox zero. How was that decision made and how do those photos get picked and curated? Maybe that's probably the one piece that feels totally subjective about Mailbox. That that feels like the identity piece to me. It's like That's like I get to know what the people that work at Mailbox mm. are into. That's the only part of it really. Everything else is, you know, very white and simple and straightforward. But that piece. Can you share about how that came to be? Well, we really wanted at the end of your, when you got to inbox zero, we wanted to celebrate getting to inbox zero. We kept thinking about the Cracker Jack in the bottom of the box. Uh, when you, you know, like mm-hmm. the little present in the bottom of check, Cracker Jack boxes. And we wanted to have like a little nugget there that when you saw it was fun and delightful and told you to put down your phone and go play outside. And uh, we were able to connect to Instagram photos that we thought were awesome. And then you get to celebrate people's accounts and they get really excited when you link to them because then they get a bunch of followers. Mm-hmm. And um, yes. we have, there's actually a a guidelines. I don't know if it's still being used now because I'm no longer at Mailbox, but I wrote it I, for the first um, year. I, I did all of the photo picking and then I wrote like a little description of like what makes it an appropriate inbox zero photo and what doesn't. And um, it's a lot of pictures of summertime and beautiful nature scenes and um, just wonderful reminders of getting off our phones and going out there and enjoying life. I love it. That Not sticking awesome. around in the workplace <laughs> after the work is done. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That is so cool. It's, That's such a good touch. So like, you know, I, I don't know, like, is that art or is that design? Like to be able to sit and kind of dream about your product and how you want it to feel and, and tie it into some more abstract tonalities of... of um, At the very least, it's artful. Things you enjoy. Yeah, it's... um. I know they all seem related to me. I mean, you're not... Actually, I wasn't painting or, you know, creating artifacts in the same way, but I don't know. It comes from a really, it comes from a similar place. So the the other big product that you're known for would be Uber. Is that correct? I worked on a team that designed the... You were pretty involved. It was um, really early on. Yes. So I worked on the Uber app. It was early on and they needed some help. <laughs> I really hated the app. I thought it was so awful. And um, I don't know. I, I feel like uh, designers are in hot demand, um, especially if you, well, I can't code, but if you can like front end for anybody listening, um, yeah, get your design skills down and like front end coding is amazing. And um, I just offered some help and I got called in with a, a team and we totally overhauled the entire app in about three weeks. And um then they spent the rest of the, well, a couple of months after that, building it out, the engineering team, which was amazing. And um, and then it launched and they're doing great. And like still the same UI is uh, flexing its muscles hard for all of the different permutations in the different cities. We designed all of that into mm-hmm. it, I mean, years ago. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. That's amazing. Yep. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, Uber's doing some great stuff. I'm super excited about that. So I want to maybe tie that back into the fear side because from what I know about your journey is you've taken some pretty massive steps from Uber uh, and then certainly when you left Mailbox. Um, that was right before the Dropbox acquisition, correct? Mm-hmm. And then you went and lived in Thailand? 
Where did you live? I've been in San Francisco, but I spend a lot of time in Bali. Okay, Bali. You went and lived there for a while, right? Uh, just like an Airbnb. Yeah. Now I get it. Okay, so this is how the Bulan Project came about. Yes. Got it. Yeah. I was so, I was trying to figure out what the connection was with Bali. Like, <laughs> it's such a random choice of place. Yeah. Do you know what's really cool? Hmm. Bulan means moon in Indonesian, and tonight is a new moon. Cool. It's the Bulaniest of nights. It's, it's the, yes, it's the, the inverse we could get. Bulaniest of nights. Yes. Okay. Okay. Anyway, go on. So, so yeah. we well, should probably talk about the Bulan project to some degree. Yeah. Can we, well, I want to get to that. So you're on the third edition. Mm-hmm. Are we? Or we can talk about correct? it now, I guess. Thanks, Bryn. <laughs> I got Indonesia. you. Don't worry. Yes. Yes. I went there. It's hard to okay. bring up Indonesia a few times in a. No, I know. I know. <laughs> well, we'll circle back to that because I feel like that came that came from each of these steps. And I imagine switching jobs is certainly like a big thing. Mm. Um, leaving companies is a big thing. Yeah. Um, and can be quite... That's, we, we get back to that unknown piece. Right, this unknown, scary... Like, I know I have to leave, but what am I going to do? Right, like you, you've been through this process before and it feels like now you're coming back to it again. Do you feel a sense of comfort in knowing that like every time you've done this before, it kind of worked yes, out? Yes, intellectually, I totally understand Okay. Academically, I get this journey and I've made a couple of revolutions around the wheel. But you know, when you're sitting with it and you're sitting with the emotional side of it and the just sort of lizard brain of it, it can be really paralyzing. And it's, I think it's, there's like two doors. There's one door um, that's very small and it's ego's door that says, I want to cling, I want to understand, I want answers, I want safety, I want security. I want to know that I'm taken care of. And sometimes that voice and that door can, um, when we go through it, actually lock behind us. And then we find ourselves in this very small room, like a cellar with no windows. And it's like, but I thought I was going to be safe if I came through this door. The other door is doesn't even have walls. It's just kind of a, a door in the middle of nothingness. And if you can hang in that space and you know, it doesn't even matter which side of the door you're on because you're not even connected to anything. If you can hang with that other side, um, the space is much larger and, and much more vast, but um, you also don't have any walls. So um, I think we need containers and we have to build them, but um, it takes time. And sometimes jumping the gun to build a container too quickly can actually uh, really limit the possible permutations that are possible. Like with uh, Mailbox, I felt very much like the longer we could hang with that ambiguity and unknown, the greater the final product would be. And sometimes we need to just like move fast because shipping is scary always. Uh, but then there are other times when the work needs slowness and just needs time. And it's like a, it's like a, it's like a flower that just needs to blossom on its own schedule and it mm. needs to incubate. Yeah. I've actually declared 2015 the year of the snail. I'm moving very slowly because last couple of years have been in like all out sprint. So I'm trying to just be very diligent and move very slowly. So it's just, I don't like moving slowly. I'd like to have it all wrapped up. So when did you write mm. the medium post, the crossroads post? So after I left mailbox, I um, was painting full time. I was just in my studio making a giant mess. Um, I felt very compelled, I think, after being so connected to glass screens and technology to um, be much more physical with my work. And the act of painting is incredibly, like, kind of everything below the neck. Uh, there's not much space there for head. Um, and I just needed to reconnect with that intuitive wisdom that's held in the body. 
So after painting for a long time, I was learning some things. And so I decided to put them together into a post on Medium because I thought it would help other folks. And I had been circula circulating around these ideas for a while and writing about them. And then finally, First Round Capital uh, wanted to do a piece for the first round review. And so I got to meet this amazing editor. Her name's Camille Ricketts. And she would come over to the studio and we just hash through all these ideas together. And she really put me on the deadline of getting this thing wrapped up and out the door. And so um, it was really wonderful to work with her to have a deadline. And, and I got it out the door, I think, April 8th of 2014. And after that, it just exploded. Um, there were people everywhere um, reading this post. And the designer in me wanted to know what was about that, like, or what was what was that about? What you know, I kept thinking there must be some unmet need. Uh, the the post is essentially about this crossroads between two roads in life, should and must, and um, how we might get more connected to must, and why we so often choose should, and having empathy for both sides of that crossroads, and the fact that we get to choose how we want to live our lives. Like that's amazing. The power is right in your hands for how you want to choose it, and. Um, I felt like I was learning more about the shoulds of my own life. And the more I learned about them, the more liberated I was from them. And the more I stepped into must, I actually realized there was a lot of fear about what if I fail or what if it's no good or what if everybody laughs at me. And so I felt like sharing all of that. And um, there were people all around the world. I think within two weeks, it was tweeted to over 5 million people and read by over a quarter of a million readers. And then I started getting inbound requests to write a book and I was very overwhelmed by all of that because I was just thinking, if I write this post, they'll leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> this will be the end of it. Yeah, and then everybody wants to have coffee. and The leeches. <laughs> oh, and then um, I did wonder, you know, could, could the, this work, if extended, be of better service to more people? And um, so I took a month off and I went to Bali, a very sacred, magical place for me. And um, I got an Airbnb in the middle of the rice paddies with no one around except for a windmill that was broken, like maybe a hundred yards from my front patio that just went like this, clock, 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 all day long in the wind. And so I had to figure out how to get over that windmill and write. And by like week two or three, I thought I had enough for a book. So I entertained publishing chats and then that happened. And and then the book came out on April 8th of 2015, exactly one year to the day of the post. And since then, you've done 36 stops on the book tour. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is unbelievable. That's only like three it's, months, um, right? It's For being the year of the snail, it started off with... <laughs> that, that sounds pretty fast. <laughs> being everywhere. The year That's of the airplane. That's a fast airplane. snail. Yes. Yeah. But it, I mean, that was such a gift. I mean, I got to go to public libraries and talk with people who I'd otherwise never meet. Um, I got to be in little bookshops in mom and pop stores in Miami and meet with students in Salt Lake City and do workshops in New York. And you just meet the slice of the humanity pie. And if you can get underneath like just a couple layers, you begin to see that we all share so much common humanity. Yeah, I would I feel like it's very rare for people to get that experience of meeting so many people from so many different walks of life, mm. um, especially getting outside of the design world and the San Francisco world. Um, San Francisco is a very tight. Yeah. It is a slice of the humanity pie. There are all the flavors in it, but it feels like our community <laughs> in particular is just so caught up in itself mm. that it's very insular. Mm. Even when there's designers and developers and whatever that are part of our community elsewhere, it's it's just very like, navel gazing it's incredible i would recommend to anybody to get out on the road 
and go into middle America and um, drop into a church on a Sunday, drop into a synagogue, if, especially if you don't normally attend synagogues, go to different types of faith meetings, meet people of different ages. Next time you're on the road, like stop at the junk shop and talk to the woman behind the counter about her life. Um, there are just so many amazing people out there and we have the capacity as makers to make anything that we want with our hands, with our minds, and that is such a gift. This this world of design is um, so powerful um, in ways that I don't even know that we fully understand as a community. And the ability that we have to design the world as we see fit is in our hands if we want it. And I was just in... Um, Paris and I rented a bicycle and was riding around on this bicycle through the the gardens and uh, through the Louvre. And if you've been to the Louvre, it's just this monstrosity of a building that goes on for blocks. And on a bicycle, you're kind of going in and out of these little tunnels and then opening up onto these huge arcades. And you're, you're inside almost like a shoebox. And I just began laughing out loud. I'm surrounded by the, this enormous world that somebody just invented. Mm -hmm. And they were no different from you or from me. And they just had this idea and they wanted it to exist and so it did. And as designers, as makers, as artists, uh, we can build worlds. We just have to decide what kind of a world we want to build. And uh, I would also encourage folks to m double check that that world also um, benefits the larger picture of the universe so that it will be in our favor. Um, sometimes when we go against the universe, it can it can take things for different directions. When you say that, it, it brings to mind um, maybe the state of marginal improvements that we see right now, which I think margi marginally improving different mm -hmm. products and, and things is great. Are you talking um, about iteration? Yeah, but not on the same product, like across across many products we're improving ideas like little by little like i guess that's the natural order of the world but i wonder how you see it now that you you're like designers can actually shape the entire world but here we are figuring out how to get more people to click on the discover stories in snapchat i don't know maybe that's a bad example how do you balance those two like metrics driven versus like incredibly emotional experience you had at the louvre i would say both are needed and it's about cadence mm -hmm. and rhythm and finding the right time for the right action. Actually, so my wife and I were just at the Louvre. Really? They built it in stages. It was marginal improvement. Cool. It ah. just happened over hundreds of years. Hmm. So it, if you look, there's a plaques everywhere in there. And it's, this was the first courtyard. This was the second courtyard. It was added on. And then now, just recently, even like, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, the pyramid was added. And that's what a lot of people think of as the Louvre. It's not that. That's the entrance. That is it. <laughs> it has an Apple store under it, but it's just the entrance. And arguably it's the best part is the Apple store. Is but it then really you also an Apple like store? look at the features. There's <laughs> no. an Apple store in there, yeah. Under the and glass pyramid? Kidding. Yeah. Right right under the pyramid, yeah. Are you joking? I'm not joking. What? Does that change your mind about no, the No, it's um it's a world somebody wanted to exist. Exactly. Hmm. So one of the really interesting things to me about it was that there are all these lions on the facade of, of the Louvre on the front face guess i mean it's hard to tell because there's one that leads down the row of the jardin de tuileries and towards like the arctic mm -hmm. triumph and everything it's this clear line where like people coming into the city would go straight into the louvre but there's another face facing like the majority of of paris that has all these lines on it and at the time i'm sure they're really regal 
Now they look like they just walked in on their parents having sex. <laughs> <They're> just like, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. <laughs> it, you don't think about the longevity of what you build, but when you look at that, it's like, this means totally different things to like two generations, right? <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Hmm. I don't know. It, it kind of blew my mind when we were there. That's a good story. <laughs> my wife pointed it out and she's just like, uh, <laughs> these lions are supposed to be like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was incredible. It's, I, I love this idea that it was built over time. Yeah, There's a wonderful book by Robert Greene called Mastery. And he takes a radical approach to thinking about our work and talks about it at a life level in terms of a life length. And um, one of the challenges he makes about modern time is our need for things to be immediate and to be fast. And we want to be great right now at the age of 23 or 35. We'd like to be masters now, especially with our focus in advertising on youth culture and our celebration of that which is young and new. Um, we marginalize as a society uh, the elderly and anyone you know over the age of I guess in San Francisco, it's quite... We all want to be quite, Jared quite, Oh, Jared. I love Jared. Um, yes. Yes. There's this um, sense of things past a certain age uh, being less of less value. And it's a real problem because uh, some of the greats throughout time really matured in their 80s or their 70s. And so one of the things I talked about in the book was that, you know, different times in people's lives when they stepped into their passion, like Julia Child didn't discover her love of French cooking until she was 41. And Laura Ingalls Wilder, the author of Little House on the Prairie, wrote that book, her first book, at the age of 63. She's from a town very close to my hometown. I've wow. heard this story a lot of times. It's so good. It's, um, it's amazing. And just to think that you might have so many lives before you actually really step into the fullness of your passion at the age of 41 or 63. And, or maybe you feel like you haven't really found it at all and you're in your 50s. Well, you've got a ton of time left. One of the stories that, and this is really shifting my perception, I think the more I step out of the immediacy, immediacy of shipping with regards to um, the products that I've worked on in the past, the, the value, value of the snail. snail is totally it. So um, the poet, um, Rainer Maria Rilke, when he was a young poet, he's living in Germany, he uh, went to Paris to study with this sculptor, Auguste Rodin who at the time was still kind of not very well known. Did you see any of his works when you were in Paris? I encountered the museum. Mm. I did not go into it. it Rodin has um, incredible, incredible, if you saw some of his pieces, you would know what they are. He uh, invited this young poet into his studio, and on the dime, this young poet decided to live in Paris for three years and to study with this man who was about 20 or 30 years his elder, but he felt like he had figured it out, his process, his practice, and what his work was about in his life. And so for three years, uh, Rilke and Rodin had all these amazing discussions. Uh, Rilke began writing about Rodin and his kind of thoughts about the world and art and what it all meant. And Rodin then created um, the most incredible honor for this young poet by making him the sole critic and uh, thinker about his work. And so uh, Rilke wrote a book called Auguste Rodin, and, I've, and I'm working my way through it right now. And one of the things that I find so amazing is that when Rodin first was getting started, he created a sculpture and he submitted it to a competition in Paris and it was rejected. He kept working in his studio. He submitted it again. He was rejected a second time. And after that, he decided that he needed to go into his studio and figure out from an incremental, iterative standpoint, his work, what was going on, and what the necessity was for him as a maker for 13 years. Rodin worked in total solitude for 13 years. That was his, that was his unit of time, 
was 13 years. And the next piece that he exhibited at the end of that 13-year period became one of his masterpieces. And after that point, every single piece after that drew upon the lessons and insights that he had found within himself during that 13-year period. So what does that mean for us as makers? Well, what would it do to your practice if you thought about a 10-year chunk of your time? Um, For the next 10 years, I'm going to focus on one thing. I'm not going to go and do other things. I'm going to commit myself to knowing this one thing. I just, I was in Berlin recently and I met this amazing artist, a sculptor working there. And um, we were having a studio visit and she said to me, if you know one thing well, you know the entire world. And for me in my practice, I've been doing a lot of bouncing around from products and painting and writing. And I've, I've, that's the way my, my mind works to a degree, but also there's a bit of antsiness in that. What would it look like if I were to just sit down for 10 years and work on one thing? It's, it's, it's actually kind of exciting. It sounds really lovely uh, to sit down and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to stare at this piece of marble until I know how to chisel into it. That's what Rodin did. He sat and looked at one piece of marble for unbelievable amounts of time. And every night for hours when he'd get home from his job, he would just stare at the marble until the marble had revealed to him what was inside of it. And then he was like, okay, now I see. And then he, it wasn't about creating the sculpture. It was about revealing what was already there. Whoa. So Mm. as I think about work and time, um, imagine like what your work is going to be in your 20s versus your 30s versus your 60s, your 80s. Um, Having that kind of viewpoint on what we're doing, I mean, we can build worlds. And so I guess it's incremental. The real delicious thing is just the time and the patience. And I would also toss in the solitude, which we're lacking because we're all very busy. What you're doing with the Blonde Project seems like it takes a lot of time. I saw the, the first one, the scarf. This is the one that I think most people know about, or most, most of our audience would know about. What, what have you been doing there since? Because we're on now the third edition. So um, Bulan Project, I guess somewhere along the way, I fell in love with the moon. I think the moon is this incredibly enigmatic thing in my life. And so I decided I wanted to make more of a livable piece of art about it. And so I replicated the moon phases for that year on this textile. I worked with these women in Bali who hand paint every single piece uh, with wax and then it's all indigo dyed. It's incredible. And it was, I guess it was iterative, me experimenting. It kind of came out of nowhere and I saw what they could do and I, it, it came out of play really. I was there for about six weeks and they began just for fun turning some of my paintings that I was doing because I was painting in an Airbnb. Somebody came by and said, can I have some of your paintings? And he disappeared and he came back right as I was leaving on a flight and handed me these exquisite textiles where he had, they had turned my paintings into textiles. It was incredible. So I knew I had to go back to Bali. That was the hook. I had to go back and see if there was something there. And I made about a hundred of these textiles and then um, I got to work with uh, Josh and Jared. Josh Rotino yes, and Jared Rondi. Yes, who are wizards on making the most gorgeous site uh, for these textiles. And then um, the photographer, Michael O'Neill, uh, got to work with basically a bunch of my heroes and bring these things to life. And the digital experience was just as much of an endeavor as the physical product. Um, and then all the packaging. I don't know. It was just fun. I got to spend like all the money I wanted on packaging. As a designer, I kept thinking like, I would like to hand stitch you know, these like unique designs into every single package. And it was like, okay, that's what we're going to spend money on because <laughs> I control the budget. So that's cool. Um, so the, it's just a labor of love. And um, 
The first one was the moons. The second one was these triangles. And uh, the third one was based on the I Ching, which is the Book of Changes. Uh, they're all kind of mystical and poetic, and we make really cool websites that I hope people go to and they feel more like they're in an art project than um, maybe your typical user flow for a checkout process. There's a, there's a gate to get in right now. <laughs> and it's the most unique gate I've ever seen. It's... um. I, I don't want to spoil it. We'll, we'll let people go check it out. But yes, it's so unique and personal. And I might say that you should probably check it out soon because it might not be there forever. Link in the show notes. Gotta plug the show notes. Gotta plug the show notes. <laughs> so one question I have, I feel like it's maybe more of a sensitive subject, but people come to me with this issue a lot is they have something they want to be doing, but one of their biggest constraints is money. Mm. And I think about spending, you know, a month in in Bali and certainly I don't know your situation all this, but like I think of spending a month in Bali and then um, going from like a very secure job where you're making money of a paycheck to sort of this broader unknown. Do you have any advice for maybe dealing with that particular fear of I don't have money to survive if I leave my current thing? Like what do I do? So in the show notes, there's going to be a link to a TED talk. Uh, by Stefan Sagmeister. And in it, he talks about three different modes of work. I watched this TED Talk and it totally blew me away. Uh, He talks about jobs, careers, and callings and how they're different. A job, he says, is something that we do from nine to five for pay. A career is like a system of advancements over time. And then a calling is something that we do for intrinsic motivation, something regardless of pay. And in this TED Talk, he asks you to identify which ones you have in your life. And this really blew me away. This I watched this when I was at Mailbox. And with all of your projects and your, your work, both paid and unpaid, how would things map across those three categories of job, career, and calling? And once you do that exercise, it puts things in perspective about why you're doing what and where your motivations are for the different types of work that you have. And once you have that list outlined, um, you can then begin to get very creative with those components. So for example, and this is something I I talked about in the book, because a lot of people say like, what if doing what I love doesn't pay the bills? And I came across people throughout time who have answered this in different ways. One of them is T.S. Eliot. So T.S. Eliot, we know him because he's an author. And I would say it was his calling because he was really good at it. It came from a place of necessity, must. But one thing I didn't know about T.S. Eliot is that he also had an amazing career as um, a financial guy in London. He had an incredible very, very successful world of finance under his belt, which I imagine created the space for him to pursue his calling. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut, another author, I would also say writing was his calling. Uh, He had a job. He sold cars. He was a car salesman. Uh, Keith Haring, he bust tables. Uh, Even Philip Glass, like he was debuting his uh, music at, he's a composer, he was debuting his music at the Met in that same year. He's like walking the red carpet in a tuxedo. Well, I don't know if it was a tuxedo, but I imagine he was in a tuxedo. He's like walking the red carpet at the Met in New York. And that same year, he also renewed his taxi license just in case. He was a plumber. He fixed people's dishwasher. There was this one great story where the uh, editor of the of Time magazine, Robert Hughes, uh, looked down to find his plumber fixing his dishwasher as Philip Glass. And he just flipped out. And he said, what, what are you doing here? You're Philip Glass. And he, and he said, well, I'm fixing your dishwasher. And he said, but you're an artist. And he said, uh, well, I am an artist, but I'm also sometimes a plumber. So you need to go away and let me finish my job. So just because you want to pursue your calling doesn't mean that you need to quit your job. Actually, it probably means you might want to keep it. 
uh, because sometimes our callings have nothing to do with money or we don't want them to. Like if I felt like I had to paint a painting mm -hmm. just to cover my rent, I would be in a really bad place creatively. Um, maybe you want money to be very far away from that, which is precious to you and kind of the poetry of your life. Or maybe you can find a way to do what you love and get paid to do it. And that's really wonderful. I think there's no one right answer. And just because we do something for money doesn't make that work dirty. Uh, we have to have money. It's like a tool in our toolkit. We just have to know its place. That's the trick. And it doesn't matter how you combine a job, a career, or a calling. Uh, you can get creative with those components. And I think kind of taking the pressure off and saying, like, it's cool to have a job. I take work that are very much jobs. I think the empowering part is knowing that it's a job. And then um, for your calling piece, protecting it like putting up big, giant, thick walls around it and protecting it and keeping it sacred. And, and it's almost, a friend of mine has a, like a sourdough starter. You know, have you ever seen these things? Yes. It's like to make bread. I tried so hard to make one <laughs> from scratch. It's impossible. <laughs> Catching wild yeast is It is, so and then difficult. you have to keep it alive. You've got to feed it every day. Like it's like a pet. Yeah. Anyway. What? Um, <laughs> it's incredible. It's, it's, you literally catch wild yeast out of the air. And then you have to hold it and you use part of it at a time. You, you leave a chunk there that you can feed and keep it alive. This is how you make sourdough. It's wild yeast. That's what makes the difference. It's not dried yeast. It's living, you have breathing creatures inside flour. Water and flour every day. This is, this is what your passion needs. Um, your passion, your calling, that which is very deep and primal inside of you, like why you're here on this earth, what you're here to create it needs to be tended to every day. It's almost like having a relationship. And that relationship with your passion will have spring, summer, winter, and fall. They will all be there. And um, that's a duel. So for example, right now where I'm in this place of kind of not knowing, I think I'm sort of in a winter. And what's important about that is knowing that it hasn't left. It's not gone because I still exist. I breathe. And so it's inside of me because I'm here. It just needs some time to gestate before it can really come out in a way that's renewed and right for the spring that's ahead. Um, and also with Bali, it's a third world country. For anybody who wants to um, save some money, I highly recommend renting out your place in San Francisco and getting an awesome Airbnb in Bali. The food is like all grown locally. The people are beautiful. Uh, the community is incredibly spiritual and it's a really sacred place. And it's just this little dot of an island in the middle of a vast ocean it's it's a very special spot so yeah you can i would recommend looking at all the four-hour work week stuff um tim's work mm -hmm. has been very inspiring to me how to get away from my um, income being tied to time and having trying to get away from that equation is everything um looking at different ways that you can monetize your value uh you can get really creative one of the topics of discussion we've had a couple times on the show is people identifying with their job so for example like if we're at a bar and I introduce Bryn, I would say, I, I might say, hi, this is my friend Bryn. He's a designer at Sidewire. And all of a sudden I've created this context of like, that's who Bryn is. Dustin Sinos wrote a really great piece about this. Yes, so we'll this, put is, in the show notes. this is based on Dustin's thoughts. But I wanted to hear your perspective on being tying your identity to your job. Now that you have gotten out of San Francisco for a while, like you've gotten to talk to other people, is that also common everywhere else? Or do you feel like that's, really happening here more and how would you i guess not do that <laughs> um i like to use verbs so in the back of my book and my bio it says l luna designs writes and paints or something they're just verbs I, I like that like so the question i would ask to you is what verbs do you do i'm at, at it's uh, for real oh this is, actually, actually, I think this is a prompt 
I design, I podcast, I run, I play with my dog. So right there, you've just <laughs> I don't know. Ex- you've expanded your realm so that I have a more complete picture of some of the things that you do. And it's not just relegated mm-hmm. to your work. What about you? You're a communicator. What do you do? What are your verbs? Design is a good start. Build would probably be one I like. Ride. <laughs> yes, shred, I, I ride shred, motorcycles. Shred pavement. <laughs> and I... <laughs> Man, that hasn't been seven years, mm-hmm. I think, since my last one. I actually want to completely redo them. And I spend an inordinate amount of time with my wife. Mm. We we build everything together, pretty much. It's beautiful. It is. I'm not being sarcastic. There's lots of eyes staring right now. <laughs> Bryn's trying to anything tell I <laughs> say that Anything I would say sarcastically, he says completely <laughs> earnestly, and it freaks me out. You all have a very nice partnership. I think it's great. Uh <laughs> Him, so Bryn, Bryn would come over to record and then Bryn would edit the shows. This is when we first started. And then we would do all the business stuff and then we'd try and sell sponsorships and like do all this kind of stuff. And so he was never at home. So his wife just just like, can I do some of that? Because A, it sounds fun and B, I get mm. to like hang out with you guys Lovely. and spend time with you. When I first met her, she was singing jazz, like in the jazz choir and I was working the recording studio for it. So we... we we connected around recording and she got into it then and she just picked it back up now. She's like, it's just like the same thing. We're spending time together by mm, building something. That's lovely. There are so many amazing couples throughout time. I just was reading Just Kids by Patty Smith, reading about Patty Smith and Robert Maplethorpe, um, looking at Charles and Ray Eames, uh, mm-hmm. the Vignellis. Some of these are very dysfunctional couples as well. <laughs> well, there's this... Uh, there's an investor here in the city who, when talking about like pairing teams, he talks about uh, some of the pairings that are high volatility are also high disruptive, uh, innovative uh, capabilities. I think if, if you've got explosive tendencies, well, I won't say explosive. That sounds destructive. Um, Big bang. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. Explosive is good. If you're going to really disrupt things, uh, you're, that's going to be a volatile situation. And then sometimes very peaceful, passive uh, partnerships can maybe not make as big of waves. I mean, you think of um, yeah. one of the great partnerships of, of our time is Johnny and Steve. And um, mm-hmm. I had an amazing opportunity to have dinner with Johnny and um, got to ask him about his partnership with Steve. And in Isaacson's mm-hmm. book, I specifically looked at this one part. I was trying to see if at any point Johnny identified like specifically what type of relationship he had with Steve. And he said he called, Johnny called Steve or Steve called Johnny a spiritual partner. And so mm-hmm. when I had the opportunity to talk to Johnny, I said to him, um, you know, in the book, he mentioned spiritual partner and I was wondering how he felt about that. And he just had a very big smile of deep knowing. There is something about a partnership that goes so much further beyond where you can see not only all the actual work that you're doing and the things that you're building, but the type of world that you want to exist or that someone else is imagining ex- building during their lifetime. And I think Johnny and Steve both also held this very tender idea of um, what kind of people they wanted to be and what kinds of things that they wanted to create in the world. And it's like, if you have somebody who can hold that hope for you, whether it's a, a spouse or a partner, or a work partner, or a friend, it, it enables you to step into that role. And um yeah, spiritual partner is something very interesting. There's, I think you have, you can have a life journey partner. You can have a, um, 
a spiritual partner, you can have a work partner, you can have all these different, very beautiful, nourishing relationships that serve very different purposes in your life. And sometimes it might be all the same person. Like some friends of mine, some of my best friends, they're married and they're also co-founders. So they've got all of that bundled up into one, but they have different relationships. Like you'll see them in co-founder mode, you know, and then you'll see them in husband and wife mode. It's, it's amazing. It's like flipping a switch. Do you have that same thing? Do you have wife mode for Sarah and then editing coworker mode? This is weird that it got into like <laughs> couples analysis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think more broadly, it's just about thinking about our lives. Like, well, this started from identifying mm. with our jobs, right? Right. But all my jobs go home, basically. <laughs> I think that's part of the whole San Francisco thing is everyone's busy all the time. I just, I have a hard time separating the different chunks of my life. So they just together. Well, that was one of the things I found when I was writing or why I decided to extend the book is that I wanted to see if people had different um, amounts of success with different types of combinations. And the people whose work I really admired uh, saw no distinction between work and life. They saw work and mm-hmm. life being all one and the same. This, this wonderful biography about Picasso by Ariana Huffington. I had no idea she had written this terrific biography about his life. And she was trying to understand his relationship between Um, his work and his life. And she said at the beginning of the book, and I can quote it, she said, the more I learned about his art and the more I delved into his life, the more the two converged. It's not what an artist does that counts, but who he is, Picasso said. But Picasso's work was so thoroughly autobiographical that what he did was what he was. And she says that's what made him great. What he did was what he was. What he did, he he lived it. You know, he's, whatever he loved went into his paintings. Um, And he loved women and he loved um, baskets of fruit and he loved all different kinds of things and they just went into his paintings and that's what made his paintings so different and weird at the time. Now, you know, we see everybody, it's everywhere, but um, at the time it was very strange. He was merging those two worlds in ways that weren't really being done um, and I found that very, very inspiring. So on the note of Picasso and iteration. Go on. I read an interview with you where you talked about Guernica. Mm. Talked about what? It's it's a Picasso painting. I actually had to make sure that I was going to oh. the right <laughs> painting. And I actually, I was at a museum. I can't remember where it was, but I, I saw Guernica in person. I don't know why I can't remember. In Madrid, at the Prado. It was not there. It must mm. have been touring. I can't place where it was. But I, I saw it, and I was yeah completely blown away. And then you talked about the, the sketches that are, are on display with it. Do you want, can you tell that story? Yes. Yeah, so um, one of the things, one of the inspirations behind the 100-day project is this idea of iteration, that if you want to do something incredible, you know, we were just talking about like building worlds, it starts with a single step. And it's a lot more fun to talk about the final thing and the final vision. And it's a lot harder to just roll up your sleeves and work with your head down for 13 years like Rodin. And just to say every day I'm going to show up and I'm going to do this work, to have a practice in place. So there's an artist here in San Francisco, George Zadaris, and we were talking about the 100-day project. And he said, I will never forget the day that I went and saw Guernica. And off to the side were all these sketches. And I had this big realization, like, what? That didn't just come out in one fell swoop? He had to do like years of studies and all of these different angles and bring in models and work on all these different components of it. And it was right then and there that he realized the value of process and of practice. And I mean, even just yesterday with this new image of Pluto being released, nine years, you guys, 
it took them nine years to get that one photograph. <laughs> and it is a beautiful, gorgeous photograph. But I, I guess maybe where I'm sitting today right now is just this interest in I'm seeing people work on things for nine years. Like, could you imagine working in silence for nine years to get a photograph of a Pluto? But it, it's like people will never be able to forget that image. It's like the first time we had an image of the earth hanging in the middle of a black darkness. The first time we were able to look back and reflect on ourselves and the, the sheer ridiculousness that we're just being hurled through this black nothingness. It changed the way that we perceived our entire selves and it's worth it. And I guess the, the question is, when you think about like your work and that you can do anything with your time, which you can never uh, get back, uh, make it something that's really valuable to you. It's really, really worth it. And I would say the more, you know, kind of coming full circle to fear, the more that it scares you, uh, the more personal it is, the more that it really asks all of you. Um, there's, this, there's this idea that like uh, some of the challenges that you faced in your own life, some of the obstacles and hurdles, some of the design challenges that you deal with, maybe at a very like primal level, um, it could be around uh, voters' rights, it could be around um, some sort of a medical device. Like there is some incredible work happening out there if there's something that really speaks to a pain point that you have very deeply in doing that work, you also create an anecdote for yourself. And um, some, it's like a medicine that you benefit from and then you get to share it with others because you're creating something, a product, a service, whatever it might be to help solve other people's problems. And that feels like, I don't know, like the more you're serving your own kind of deep needs, you're also creating something really valuable for the world. Um, and that's a... I guess service would be the word that comes to mind. Um, but it's really figuring out like, well, yeah, there's a lot of problems I could solve. I, I could go help think about black cars in um, cities. I could go think about how to get, you know, better music on the Super Bowl field at halftime. I could um, try to design different types of bottles for um, soda companies, maybe reduce the plastic or, you know, for shoe boxes, get them 10% smaller so we're cutting down less trees. There's so many different like ways that we can think about what we're doing. And I guess if you're skilled, you could be employed for any of them. The question is find something mm -hmm. that you're really deeply passionate about and that connects to a deep problem that you have that, um, that you could work on for a long time and chip away at. That feels, well, I don't know. It will see maybe. It's like living for hire. What does that mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> You, you were talking about Picasso and how his passion was just something he got paid for. Oh, right, right. And how people don't disconnect what their job is versus what their uh, actual life is. Yeah. Well, if you can make money doing what you love and it doesn't ask that you compromise it, even one iota, then do it. But um, at one of the most amazing people alive, you have to find this person on Twitter, is Jodorowsky. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you... Um, Steven Jodorowsky? Oh, no, uh, <laughs> I'll give it to you. Um, he's a Chilean filmmaker. Um, he created Dune, the movie. And um, he, he basically had this... Alejandro Jodorowsky. Alejandro Jodorowsky. So he tweets all in Portuguese. So he has... Uh, it's called Jodo English. So that's the Twitter account you want to follow. And it's just... It's total... It's like somewhere between is he mad? Is he enlightened? It's, it's, it's awesome. It's wonderful. And um, he wanted to create um, a movie about Dune, the book. And he didn't read the book, but he wanted to make a movie about it. And he wanted Salvador Dali to play a part, but Salvador Dali wanted to be paid $3 million a minute. And he figured out a way that he could do it. 
I mean, it was just the most ridiculous. Um, so the final film, they ended up spending a couple million dollars in three years. He trained his son to be the main character who was like a jujitsu master. Uh, his, so his son like kind of embodied this character, which is questionable. <laughs> um, and they built out all these sets. They just had a blast. And he called his entire cast uh, spiritual warriors. They were all spiritual warriors making a movie. And um, at the end of this three years, they had the final manuscript created. They had all the sets sketched out. He had brought on every single one of his like favorite artists and thinkers. And he presented it to all the studios in America to get funding. And it was going to be 36 hours. <laughs> and the film houses said, well, it sounds really nice, but we're going to need to make a two-hour feature-length film. And in the movie, it's amazing. He says, but the film isn't two hours. It's 36 hours. And they said, well, then we won't give you money. And he said, why won't you fund my project? And they said, because the public wants a two-hour movie. And he said, well, the public doesn't understand how great my 36-hour movie is. And they got into a big fight and the whole thing fell apart. So there's a movie now called Jodorowsky's Dune. So the movie never existed. It, it only exists as a concept. And really what he was predicting was the, the rise of these long series of TV shows, which are now very film-like. Like, look at Lost. Look at all of these incredible multi-hour, that's essentially what he saw. And he didn't compromise even a smidge for his idea. So you had, this movie is terrific. And um, there's something about, I guess, I don't know, we're coming back to like kind of art and design. That's somebody saying like, well, I don't care. Like the system needs to change. And it was that important to him. Um, now maybe you want to get your movie out. I don't know. Uh, but there's something nice about like sticking with the vision all the way through. And, and he's wonderful too in the documentary. He's, he's wild and free and, and very mysterious. Working on a project for 10 years sounds terrifying. I don't think I could work with you for 10 years. Sorry, dude. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> at some point in this conversation, we ran over on time. Amazing. It'll be the 36-hour podcast. This was the fastest... <laughs> Strap in. We got 35 more of these. This was the fastest feeling. We've gone to Pluto. We've gone to feeling, the Louvre. Yeah. We've been into the iPad, iPhone, the Apple Store. <laughs> we <laughs> traveled the world. Jodorowsky's <laughs> Mind, which is a crazy universe. Thank you for having me on the show. This is great. Thanks for coming. Anything you'd like to plug before you leave? Uh, check out the book. It's on Amazon and lots of places. The Crossroads of Should and Must. Um, it's great for anybody who wants to get closer to their passion and uh, find and follow it with more fervor in their life. And if someone wants to come find you. Oh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Luna E-L-L-E-L-U-N-A, or Luna.com. All right. Boom. Thanks for coming. Really Thank appreciate so it. Thanks for having me. That was episode 45. That was fun. We really hope you enjoyed listening and learned something. If you did, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. We have open DMs. Uh, you can just mention us. We would love to chat and hear your thoughts. Uh, also, we launched spec.fm it's a new podcast network for designers and developers we hope you'll check it out go to spec.fm and follow us on twitter at spec.fm for more news and show updates we are working on new we shows have tons of stuff coming for you guys you lots no and lots of stuff is in the works and we are really excited to announce it um but in the meantime go to spec.fm and follow us before we go as always, we have two amazing sponsors that make this show possible, and we want to thank them. First, Adobe. They've got our back. They, uh, they've they been building some amazing products. They're listening to you, the 
people of the design community and building what you ask for. And that is pretty incredible. You don't usually get that from a company of that size. CC 2015 was a huge level up if you are designing interfaces. We highly recommend it. They have amazing new tools to make your life as a designer incredibly easy, much faster, and help you actually design great interfaces for your product. It's like having superpowers. I mean, it's kind of the the de facto standard of That should be their new tagline. Adobe. It's like you have superpowers. I mean, Adobe means mud hut, so... (laughs) Well, I like it. Uh, Build a mud hut with superpowers. But they do give you superpowers. If you go to adobe.com, you can learn more. And we also have a link to everything that's new in CC 2015 in the show notes. So go to spec.fm and the show notes live there. Also, huge, huge thank you to Dropbox. They are our second sponsor for this show. And they are a tool that we use and love every single day. They're not even a tool anymore. They're just part of our lives. They're just built in. Yep. Built into our lives. Like car payments. They keep, there. they keep our files safe, secure, synced. And they take care of you. They get you where you need to be, like a car payment. And for us, so important is that they're supporting the design community. They're making shows like this possible. If you aren't using Dropbox, go to dropbox.com, check out the service, sign up. It's free. We use them every day. We love them. And the show would not be possible without them. So huge thank you to Dropbox. And we'll see you on Monday with Josh Sortino.